I'm Joni Guzman with the American Heart Association. We all know that stroke is a leading cause of death and disability. Together, we can change that. Join the American Heart Association and the Montana Stroke Initiative for a series of podcasts covering guideline-based stroke care from pre-hospital through acute treatment and even into post-acute care to learn more about timely, effective treatment guidelines and best practice sharing. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to heart.org forward slash Mission Lifeline Montana. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Montana Fast Chats. My name is Piper Kometz. I'm a stroke nurse in Bozeman, Montana, and I'm on today with my mom, Mary Bardot. We are going to discuss caregiving and the role of the caregiver. So three years ago, my dad suffered a right-sided large vessel occlusion with left-sided hemiparesis. The long and short of the story is that after 11 passes at his clot, he had a failed thrombectomy and was left with severe left-sided hemiparesis, in addition to mental injury that is associated with a right-sided large vessel occlusion. He underwent five weeks of inpatient rehab in Salt Lake City and then was transferred to a skilled nursing facility in Bozeman, Montana, where he spent seven weeks until he was discharged home on hospice due to a significant decline in the skilled nursing facility. My mom kept and cared for my dad at home for three years, during which time he came off hospice and was able to have a meaningful existence in the face of all of his disability. Um, So I'm here with my mom, Mary Bardone, today to talk about caregiving and the role of the caregiver. So mom, first of all, how old are you? I'm 81. So three years ago, when dad had a stroke, you were 78. Correct. And uh, what did you do for a living in your life? I was a clinical social worker, and I had a private practice. So you were kind of a mental caregiver, but maybe not so much of a physical caregiver. Correct. Totally mental. Emotional. Emotional. Okay. Um, And prior to this event with dad... Would you have considered yourself to be a caregiver? No. I was always very independent and did my own thing. And, you know, was a good spouse, but I was not a caregiver, especially a physical caregiver. And in your relationship pre-stroke, who would you say was the bigger caregiver, you or dad? Well... Uh, he did a lot of things for me. So yeah, I would say maybe he was. So I'm kind of just going to bridge now into, um, caregiving post-stroke. So, uh, you and dad had a very active lifestyle, very active relationship, traveled the world. You're taking care of our two-year-old daughter scout at the time. You're constantly driving over to, to where we live in Livingston to, you know, go out to dinner with us, uh, go hiking, pick Scout up from school. And then that was a stark contrast. That lifestyle was a stark contrast to the day that dad came home from the skilled nursing facility. Um, he was transferred home in, actually it was an ambulance, but we had to have the fire truck come and help him get into the house because I think we had five stairs. But I remember standing out in the driveway with your neighbor and my husband and everyone was shaking their head, seeing how much it even took to get dad into our house. And they were shaking their head. They're saying, there's no way that they could make this work at home. He needs to go to a nursing home. Um, but you were adamant that he stay at home. 
And I think three years later, everyone has come full circle and admitted that they were completely wrong. And it was a hundred percent the right decision to have kept him at home. But you and I were kind of talking about this recently. Um, it's not everybody who is able to do this. So, you know, it, it sounds great and wonderful that we're able to provide this for him. But what do you think um, it required to provide care to dad who was bedridden and needed full cares? What do you think is required for somebody to provide that care at home? Well, I think we're extremely lucky because dad was a veteran. So we had VA benefits as they provided us with, in the end, 35 hours of free care a week. Uh, we had hospice who has, who was very present and helped us. And we had a plethora of caregivers. And I think that's the most important thing. You just have to have a lot of help because you can't do it yourself. I wasn't interested in doing it myself. I was interested in maintaining some of my life, maintaining some of our life. And you just have to have a lot of people in your home to help you, which isn't always easy. Yeah. Can you talk about that transition a little bit of um, going from having this independent lifestyle to suddenly having all these people in your house and relying on them and needing them? Yeah. So the day he got home, there must have been 10 caregivers in the house trying to figure out the system and how you use the Hoyer lift and how you get him in bed and how you get him out of bed. And I thought, whoa, this house is no longer my own. And you have to be very open to having people come in of all walks of life. We had so many different caregivers and you have to be open to that changing. Caregivers don't stay forever. So maybe every six months, the caregiver that we had gotten used to and that we loved would somehow move on with her life and we would have somebody else. It just turned out that everyone got better and everyone got just more of what we needed for the time. So we were lucky, but you have to give up your privacy, your physical privacy and your emotional privacy. And the people who are in your home are not always the people that you would, you know, be friends with or have, have in your home at other times. But I learned to appreciate every single one of them. They were all wonderful in their own way. Yeah, and I think that you and dad always did that well pre-stroke, that you're always very welcoming into your house. So that was probably something that that did help a little bit. I think too, in my perspective, um, we did have a GoFundMe that afforded a live-in caregiver for the first year. And that was huge as you were transitioning to being a caregiver as well. Mm -hmm. um, not to toot my own horn, but you did have a daughter who was a stroke nurse. And so I knew a little bit about how to, you know, change seat sheets for a bedridden person or be able to get dad into the shower. Mm -hmm. um, you were really lucky in that your house was actually handicap ready. So you had a handicap accessible shower. Um, right. a, a lift was anonymously donated and you had a friend who was a construction worker to install that. I would also add to that an incredible community of friends. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of the things that I think are really important to be able, able to even attempt this giant feet at home. Um, one, other, one other thing I think is really interesting in this is you talked about the Hoyer lift. And when you're looking at nursing homes or home care, um, the Hoyer lift was a big deal. People didn't have experience in it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 
we could probably teach a um, master's degree on the Hoyer list at this point. But um, that was like a really intimidating factor. So you just kind of think if someone has a stroke that there's going to be that care that's like ready and trained and skilled. Um, but that wasn't necessarily the case. I feel like we all kind of learned together to the point that we became the educators, I guess. Exactly. Every new person that came in, you had to start from ground one. Okay, this is the whole year. This is how you do it. This is what Bill needs. And then, you know, they all learned over time. But every time it was like you had to start again. And you had to, you're right. You, we had to be the educators. And I guess that was probably after a year of getting educated. Because uh, I'll say from my first perspective, so you did have a living caregiver for the first year. And you were able to really heavily rely on her. Mm -hmm. Um and I would say that I remember you not infrequently saying, I hate this. I don't want to do this. I'm not a caregiver. Right. So tell me about your transition with that. Gosh, I think it was a long transition between resisting it because it wasn't my forte. My forte was emotional caregiving and my forte was creating a great lifestyle for us. But my forte was not being a physical caregiver. So I'm not sure how it happened, but I think over time I came from resisting it, and I would say that I hate this, to accepting. And now it's the end, and I feel like I've totally accepted it. But, you know, it's hard when you've had a very active lifestyle, done what you want, been very independent, to suddenly be so slowed down and have someone so dependent on you, and for you to realize that you're the one. So I, yeah. I couldn't be as independent and so-called maybe even self-selfish as I always had been. But Bill and I had a great partnership and we did so many things. So I think part of that hating it to acceptance was learning how to create a good lifestyle for ourselves in the situation we were in. So we weren't traveling anymore. We weren't doing a lot of things, but we could take the wheelchair and go downtown and have coffee. We could go out to dinner. We, I could um, push him to the symphony because we lived right downtown. So I created a different kind of lifestyle that was also good for me. Interesting. And I guess that's kind of one of my questions with all yeah, of this. So it, was, it was a switch. It was maybe a slow switch, but, and you also had to slow down so much. You know, I was used to, and dad, he was used to going nonstop too. And suddenly our lives came to a screeching halt. So you had to think about, you know, how do, how do you slow down and what do you give up and what do you maintain? So we have a lot of friends. I maintained all my, all of our friends and I still went hiking twice a week and I went to yoga class, but that's just because I had the care. You know, I had all those VA caregivers there, which allowed me to have somewhat of a life too, which was essential for me. Yeah, let's talk about that. There's a lot, I think, that just came up in uh, what you just said, but let's talk about you're having a life as well. Um, I, I I have to admit that sometimes in the very beginning, I thought, why is my mom going hiking? She needs to be taking care of my dad. And now three years later, I realized that that was your lifeline. And I think everybody really admires you for um, being steadfast in taking care of yourself, because I don't think you would have survived if you didn't do that for yourself. So no. What did you do for yourself that you to maintain your own life? And what do you recommend for other caregivers in maintaining their own life? Yeah, well, you know, every caregiver has their own personality. So 
everyone has to decide what they can do for themselves. And not everyone would do it like I did it. And I'm sure a lot of people thought, you know, she's not home enough or whatever, but you have to do what works for you. And what worked for me was I have a hiking group and we did hike twice a week and I have yoga classes and I went there twice a week. And I and I continued to try to create a good lifestyle for ourselves. Like in the summer, we would sit out on the porch and have a drink before dinner and I would have friends over to do that. Um, I would have friends over for dinner. People would bring us dinner. So you just had to keep creating and recreating what would work. And as Bill continued to go downhill, then it was different. Then you did different things. But you had to always be flexible and always go with the situation while at the same time keeping my uh, interests going too. And those were steadfast. Those didn't change. But his situation changed. So I had to, you know, go go with that and continue to get the help I needed. And it was amazing, but always the help came at the right time, which is one of the biggest lessons of that when when you need something, something will appear. And it did appear. And it was always the right the right person to come in at the time. It was it was a blessing. We had so many blessings from all the different people who came in from, you know, a black lady from Liberia to a a a uh, a conspiracy theorist from Texas. It was just, you always had to be used to all these different personalities. And I, I think that that was something, because you and dad were world travelers. You were always out um, experiencing new cultures, new events, new things, and that kind of came to a screeching halt. So one thing that I think actually kept dad alive as long as, it, um, as he has been was your insistence on... Um, bringing the world to to your home because you no longer could leave your home to go to the world. And I think that was really important. I, I With Dad's injury, you know, he maybe in the beginning he could play a little bit of cribbage and do some puzzles, but it wasn't like he was able to like really read or write or particularly take up many other hobbies. Right. Um, and so there was a lot of indoor time. There was a lot of downtime. There was a lot of time of being trapped within the four walls of your house. But like you said, you experienced the world through all of your different caregivers. Um, you had a lot of friends that would come and bring dinner. You went to the symphony. You could go out to dinner. We, we'd walk to a coffee shop once a week and go get coffee. Uh, I would say really checking out the um, resources in your own town is a big thing for uh, handicap or disability because we had Eagle Mount, which is an adaptive sports facility where we were able to take the Galavan, which is a um, public transportation bus for people with disability. And it had like a lift for a wheel wheelchair. So we we're able to take that Galavan to Eagle Mount, which had a pool and get down into the swimming pool sometimes once a week. So um, that was another big thing. And still like having adventure and recreation and connection um, outside of this sort of hefty um, list of a stroke, mm -hmm. pervasive stroke, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you, anything else that you think? Well, you really have to, you know, give up what you used to do because that wasn't going to happen. So then you have to be very creative and thinking, okay, but what can we do? And what can give our lives somewhat enjoyment, somewhat joy? And because of the stroke, he didn't have that initiative. 
you know, to do anything, really. So I had to provide all that initiative, and that gets tiring. But that's one of my fortes in life, is to figure out what to do and how to make life interesting. So I did that. It kept getting a lower and lower level, but at each level, you had to figure out, okay, what's going to work now? And I think, I think we did that really well. Yeah, I think so, too, which is not easy because... So you you go from having this independent life and then you bring somebody home who's full care, bedridden. Mom, I didn't mention, but let's just also add in there that uh, you also have a vision um, deficit. So you're very, very um, vision impaired. So you don't drive. It's hard for you to go to the grocery store. Um, it's it's uh, maybe difficult for you to clean the house. You are able to do a, a lot of social activities and um you know, the swimming and getting outside the house and the hiking. But um, there, there were certain elements of caregiving too, like going to the grocery store, getting a meal or something like that, mm-hmm. that were that were made extra difficult because of your um, vision impairment. Right. But um, so anyway, I want to I want to just kind of go back to the fact that you bring somebody home who's fully dependent and has complete care needs. So you're not only just... Um, tending to you know brief changes getting them breakfast trying to figure out how to brush their teeth changing their clothes a shower just the activities of daily living end up taking about 75 percent of your time but then you're also looking at trying to do some physical rehab with this person and you did an an incredible amount of scheduling coordinating phone calls so there's also that element and then on top of that this like how are we still going to have a life so it's a lot multifaceted you i always said that i feel like i'm a ceo of a small organization (laughs) that you did you had to be super organized people were coming and going all the time you had to be aware of them you had to be aware of what you needed and to try to get that and also had to be aware of what you couldn't do I think that was yeah. a little bit hard, and I could say maybe I regretted not doing this, not doing that, but there's so much, only so much you could do, and it, he did not have the initiative to do it, and I would just say, well, I can't do it for you. You have to want to do it, but that wasn't yes. how, he, how he could be because he had a stroke, so in a way, it was unfair to say, but um, I had to be aware of this is what I can't do. And and so what if he doesn't get better in this in this realm? And maybe he wouldn't have anyway. But you just cannot do it all. And the physical care I really never liked. And but I had help to do all that. And they were always very good. What were some of the things you realized you couldn't do? Oh gosh, I couldn't continue doing the PT that we tried to do with him. <laughs> I couldn't uh, continue some of the OT stuff because then they weren't coming anymore. Um, oh, what else do you think of? Uh, oh, just keeping him uh, amused all the time or keeping something going all the time. You know, I couldn't always do it. I had to let go. It was okay if he had that in his bed and didn't have any, you know, external uh, stimulation going on because that was another big pressure, like, how to keep him stimulated, how to keep him interested, you know? That was a yeah. change in all of our lives. And so you had to let go of being that 100%, you know, organizer and 
cheerleader. I mean, I could always be the cheerleader, but I couldn't always do it. So you had to probably let go of a little bit of control. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. Not my forte either. <laughs> but yeah, control of, I mean, I think you, like you said, you had to be a CEO of a small company. So you had to have control of a lot, but right. then you have to realize, and that's actually, I, I've been involved in a lot of this caregiving too. And I'd have to say my progression as a nurse who's worked in the ICU and been a stroke nurse, and now I guess a home nurse to my dad who has a stroke, my progression in all of this is that when dad first got home, I had a vision of how it should be. Like I've always worked in hospitals where things are neat and timely and you turn the patient every two hours and you chart that. And you do like certain aspiration precautions for feeding and they only get a certain diet. I just had all these things like very neat and tidy from my hospital background. Mm. And I this in my in my sense, I had to like relinquish a little bit of control too, because when we mm. got home, I realized that the home environment is messy. And I'm not saying that oh, you guys have a messy scene. It's just not the hospital. And it's not it's not controlled and it's not perfect. And, um, and sometimes, you know, dad will get turned every two hours in the middle of the night. And, um, maybe he does end up kind of choking and aspirating because he didn't have like the exact diet that the dietitian from the hospital prescribed. And, or, or maybe he did actually have a bowel movement and he's up in his chair and he sits in it for a couple of hours, as opposed to like having it cleaned up right away in the hospital. And that used to just drive me crazy at first. And then I just had to step back and let go and realize this is working. He's having a good quality of life at home. And just because all the little boxes in my nursing brain aren't getting checked, doesn't mean that he's not getting good, good care. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. The care, the good care he got was quality of life, uh, figuring out fun things for us to do. And having people come in and being open to everything and being emotional. I was emotionally present, even though I wasn't always physically present. Yeah, that's, I would say that's, that's true. Um, so one other thing that I think is really interesting for couples to talk about, um, and I know you guys did the University of Utah's study in um, maintaining the relationship post-stroke. But you, you, I forgot to mention that dad was also a family and marital therapist. So you guys both had like a pretty significant background in training in psychotherapy and probably aspects of maintaining relationship. But that said, you can, um, you can instruct those things really well. But when it happens to you and all of a sudden you're trying to maintain parts of your relationship, given this huge change and dad not being the partner or the um, role that he used to be in the family and the relationship. Mm-hmm. How, what did you do to preserve qualities of your relationship prior to stroke in the post-stroke setting? Well, we ended up doing, I mean, we've had such a wonderful, adventurous life. We did a lot of reminiscing and his memory was as good, if not better than mine. So we could spend hours just taking it segment of our life and just say, okay, let's talk about this. And we would talk about it and, you know, kind of bring it up into the present and 
relive it and laugh about it. And that was always wonderful. Sometimes I would read to him. I'd read in the newspaper. I'd read him all little vignettes of some sort. Uh, we'd watch a TV show together and talk about that. We'd watch the news together. We would, uh, you know, sit on the porch, have a beer before dinner and hold hands and just talk to people who went by. And, and you know, and create new things. We always loved going out to dinner. We would go out to dinner. So we did as many of the old things that we could do that was possible. But, of course, we had to let go of 90% of that. Yeah. But I think you did a good job and still <clears throat> yeah. trying with that because that's an easy right. thing to give up on. And, you know, from dad's perspective, I think that this is something I've thought about a lot. And he mentioned this once or twice that um, any sort of human touch that he had was functional. Like it was rolling him over to change a breeze. It was um, getting him into the wheelchair. It was functional. It was often uncomfortable because he would say he was being manhandled, you know? Right. So I, Good point. I think we all kind of got better, but it's something for people to think about, um, you know, just trying to initiate that touch, like you said, holding hands or, um, you know, stroking his forehead. Or we got one of those um, head scratchers or even a back scratcher or a foot massage, like things that um, aren't, aren't just functional touch, but actually right. caring touch. And I think yeah. that that's something that I at least tried to become more aware of over time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because after you've done all the functional touch and then you think, I can't, I can't give a massage. I can't do that right now. You know, I can't even rub his head right now. I can't even hold his hand right now. I need just to, take a break and so that is a good point of maintaining that emotional touch yes I actually never thought of it that way but I think that's really important I think one other thing that I would say is important we always kind of had this as a family before but almost dad's injury um, with his stroke almost brought out his sense of humor um it, it kind of wiped out his um emotional uh, emotional diversity, I guess, like he was a little bit more flat, but yeah. it really brought out his sense of humor. And right. I think that the um, having humor, yes, is a huge, huge thing in surviving this as well. And thank goodness, Dad was a humorous person to start with. Um, people often, you know, stroke is not something that you want to wish upon anybody or that you want to bring into a family but people often do talk about you know the good things that came of it mm -hmm. and i would say dad's humor and just all of us being able to stop and laugh all together was mm -hmm. one of the really good things that came out of this stroke mm -hmm. and um i would say another good thing too is just uh a lot of family time mm -hmm. whereas like I probably wouldn't have taken two days off a week in the very beginning to spend six, eight hours a day at your house for a year with my two and a half year old daughter. So there was there was a lot of family time and there was a lot of laughter. And I think that that was one of our big survival techniques. Absolutely. That I would always say there's almost more joy in our house in the mornings than any other house in Bozeman because the the nurses would come in to change him. I'd be there. He would be ready with a quick sense of humor. And there was so much laughter. There was 
amazing amount of laughter. You know, now there isn't because he's non-responsive. But for, you know, two and a half years, I think we were blessed with laughter. His quick sense of humor and everyone else's sense of humor. And it was really a miracle almost. And I would just step back and think, wow, here we are. And we're all just laughing and having a good time. So now I'll probably tear up, but we're kind of at the tail end of this journey. Right. And we're about to go from your life being completely consumed uh -huh. on a daily basis by this caregiving. Right. To um, you're going to go to not having to be a caregiver anymore. So how do you envision that and what are your techniques going to be to transition into your days not being dictated by caregiving? Well, you know, I really have no idea. And I always say, I'll know what I'll do when I get there. And, you know, I can't pre-think that too much right now, but it's going to be a huge change, you know. all of I'll keep up what I always do, hiking and going to yoga. But, you know, all that time in between was just being with Dad and helping him out and, you know, keeping things figured out. And, you know, I hope to travel. I hope to go see people I haven't been able to see in a long time. Um, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I'll count on friends. Um, I'm going to have to leave my house, so it's going to be a huge transition for me, too. And you know what? I know I'll manage it. It'll be hard. Yeah. I know you'll manage it, too, because you're good at uh, figuring out what to do. So Right. Yeah. But that'll be... That'll be almost a bigger transition. Well, as big a transition as having dad come home and my life, you know, changing then. Then this is another one. But yeah, you know, it's another segment of my life that you know I didn't get married till I was thirty-four, so I had that. We had forty-seven years of a wonderful marriage, and now I have the rest of whatever time I have to figure out something else. And it'll be curious to see. Well. I think with that, Mom, um, thank you so much for being willing to be on this podcast and being willing to share your experience and your emotions. And it's been a long journey for both of us with lots of ups and downs. But I'd like to remind everybody that while there's lots of downs, there's lots of ups, too. Well, and, I think um, we have more blessings and hardships in this. Yeah. I think that's true. And one other thing I'll, I'll add just to the end of this is we talk a lot in the professional world about how to prepare our patients who are going home with stroke and what are we not telling them and how can we prepare them better. Her. And I've thought a lot about this. And it's, you know, when you're faced with that acute stroke in the hospital, you're not ready for all the information that the next three years is going to lead you through. So, I really think that in the acute phase, we're doing a pretty good job of preparing people. And um, I guess one of the things that the acute phase folks should know is that, you know, when people go home, it's going to be a very, very big journey. I think that the acute care side of things should understand that um, in discharging a stroke patient, it's not necessarily something that you can provide them with a roadmap for because it's a journey and there's just going to be a lot of learning along the way 
that you're not ready to kind of take in all at that moment of discharge. And there will be steps of realization and steps of learning and steps of self-reflection that will happen along the way that really just can't be taught by a um, by a healthcare provider at discharge. So, and it's, not, and it's not a cookie cutter approach. You know, everyone will handle it in a different way, and everyone has a more open or closed family system, and that will dictate how the care goes. You just have to be so flexible. Yeah, I think flexibility is huge. That's actually a really good take home. Flexibility is really huge because you'll right. have plans for the day. And right. somehow those plans will get foiled. The bus right. won't show up or the right. Eagle Mount pool heaters right. is, is out and you can't go swimming or, right. you know, right. so. Yeah. Um, you take advantage of what you can and you have to accept what doesn't work out. Well, I think with that, Mom, thank you again. Um, I, I wish both of us luck in our upcoming journey yeah. of shedding our caregiving roles. There will be a, a mixed bag of release and sadness in that. And um, for everybody who has joined us here today with the Montana Fast Chats, thank you very much. And uh, we encourage you to like, follow, or subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast. And you can find this podcast on any source that you listen to podcasts on. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to heart.org forward slash Mission Lifeline Montana. A Huda Media Production.